Welcome once again, wrestling fans, to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. This is our first edition, our first volume to go out in the year of our Lord, 2022. And we do this every year. It's always kind of a little bit with a heavy heart that we do this, but we feel we owe it to the talent and the creative people that we lose uh, from the wrestling world every year. So we're going to talk about In Memoriam 2021 to, as uh, wrestling fans like to say, joined that big battle royal in the sky last year. And with me as usual for this edition of Classic Wrestling Memories from the nice soft batted cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Seth didn't, didn't tell us, I guess I will. We were sorry that this is a little late getting out. We've had some craziness with the holidays and... We had to change servers, so there's been a lot of technical issues going in that don't really concern you, the listener, mm-hmm. but has been especially hard on Seth. So we we got everything taken care of now, and we're we're, we're back up and running at full speed, and and let's let's hope that yep. we don't have any more speed bumps in the road, so to say. But we have both noticed uh, a, a, a large growth in followers and likes on our Facebook page. We've noticed a large increase in downloads. Of course, we're very, very thankful for that. We hope you like the content we're giving you. Of course, always feel free to reach out to us, and we'll let you at the end of the show the different ways you can reach out to us to tell us what we're doing good, what we're doing bad, what you'd like to hear. This, like like Seth said, is something we've been doing now for, I think, what, this is the third year in a row we've done it? Yeah, third so, or fourth, something like, yeah. So is this is probably going to be a standard, but anyway... It is with a heavy heart, but I think we do need to give each one of these individuals a little bit of of mention and and talk about them a little bit because one of the things that I love about wrestling is it has a rich history and it's not that old. It's only been around for a little bit over 100 years. So it's it's kind of amazing that we pack so much history in a short span of time in this wonderful sport that we call professional wrestling. So without that, I'll let let Seth take the reins and we'll just go down the list, I think you said, in alphabetical order and talk about each one of these passings. Yep, I figured the easiest thing to do would be alphabetical simply because it it makes listing easier. The other idea was to go through from January through December, but I just figured for simplicity's sake, we'll just go alphabetical and uh, run from there. So we got a couple dozen, really, and really really varying. There, There are some legends, some Hall of Famers. There are some people who really were kind of at maybe not necessarily in their prime but a lot younger a lot of these people way too young to die but a lot of these also they had uh pretty full lives the first one we'll talk about was somebody who i first truly started to recognize when we did our first episode of classic wrestling memories with mike mooneyham he was a part of the first Starcade, although he really wasn't much of an in-ring competitor at, the, at this point, but we're talking about Angelo Mosca. He was uh, part of the original Starcade, and I remember he, he got bloodied because I think he was a referee in a match or an enforcer in a match or something like that. And he and I, I marveled at the babyface promo he cut while he's <laughs> getting all stitched and helped up in in the back. Yeah, that, that spirit of '76 head wrap with the blood on it and everything. Yeah, but great visual. The interesting thing is most of his career he was a heel but he's mm-hmm. also a member of the canadian football hall of fame because he was one of those like a lot of guys in the 50s and 60s in the off season of football he turned to wrestling to have something to do during those times because in those days professional football players weren't making nearly what they do now because now nowadays right. most most professional football players that's their only profession anything they do outside of that is usually 
something for fun or acting or something like that where they aren't at risk of getting hurt. But that wasn't the case way back when, just because pay was just different then and contracts and things like that. Yeah, and Canadian Football League has always been uh, lesser than the than National Football League. So he probably he made even less money than the NFL guys like Wahoo. But he did, though, he did. live a full life. A- he was, I think, in his age. I think he passed at 84. And just looking just at the titles he had, I think he had at least a dozen titles o- over his career, most of them NWA titles. So anything else mm-hmm. you can add about Angelo Mosca? No, he just was one of those typical football player turned wrestlers, a big guy, brawler, a pretty good promo, which was always important in this business, but but even more so for big guys because you know a lot of big guys couldn't talk and he could and and i know a lot of guys from that era would talk about he wasn't the greatest worker in the world i don't think he was i think he was he was it was the legitimacy he brought from being a former football player and being a legitimate tough guy that probably sold his persona to the crowd but definitely important i for anybody who wants to know what he looks like who doesn't know like Seth said go back to first arcade there's that famous uh still of Ric Flair being carried on a, on another wrestler's shoulders after he's won the title in the cage against Harley. That's Angelo Mosca, whose yeah, shoulders he's on. Yeah, I think it's Angelo and I, I, Rick Steamboat, too, right? Rick Steamboat's the other yeah, one? well, Rick comes out there, but I, he literally sits on Angelo's shoulders at one point. Okay. And Angelo walks him around the ring. So that's a great visual. Mm-hmm. Barry Orton competed in WWE under the name Barry O because he was actually Bob Orton Jr.'s brother. And that makes him the uncle to Randy Orton. And I believe Randy actually got his name from Barry because Barry Orton's first name is actual, actually Randy, if I recall correct. Right. You, you know what I mean? That's, that <laughs> wouldn't be shocking. I know, yeah. I know Randy has said on multiple occasions that if you want to take all the Ortons, him, his dad, his granddad, Barry was the toughest of all of them. He was, the, he was, and, and I don't think Randy's a slouch by any stretch of the imagination. And I know Bob Jr.'s not, a, not, not a, there's that famous story about Bob Jr., who was wrestling Mr. T in the buildup to, I believe, WrestleMania two in the boxing match of Piper. Mm-hmm. And he comes to the back, sits down, lights up a cigarette, and is reading the paper like he's, like, like he's having a coffee break. And, and Mr. T's about ready to die from getting blown up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're like, oh, Piper's going to kill him. <laughs> yeah, that's what the rest of And if, if Randy says Barry was tougher than that, well... I don't think I need to say a whole lot else. For modern listeners, though, the thing that they probably know the most about Barry O is probably, unfortunately, the Ring Boy sex scandal that we discuss in the Pat Patterson episode, volume 36. Barry, when he worked for Vince's father and for Vince's and for Vince himself, he was always he was never figured in like like his nephew or like his like his brother. He was more of an enhancement talent. But early in his career in the 70s, when he first got to, to New York, he had openly talked about he had been propositioned multiple times by Terry Garvin to perform sexual favors on him. He politely would tell him, no, Terry, that's not, no. And then when the sex scandal came up later, right before the steroid trial, and Terry Garvin was implicated in it, uh, a lot of the attorneys and whatnot referred back to 10 years prior, this experience that Barry O had had with Terry as, as proof that there was a history there. But we talk about, like I said, in the, we discussed that in more detail in the, in the Pat Patterson because Eventually, Terry was fired and never brought back, and Pat kind of fell on the sword for that, too. It's one of those dark underbelly parts of wrestling. I know Seth doesn't like to to talk about a lot, but he also openly admits that it, it happens. So 
unfortunately, that's probably the most the most high profile thing Barry O did to a lot of wrestling fans. Yeah. But that's sad because he was a good wrestler. He's in the Orton family. I don't think I need to say anything else about how good a wrestler. And Randy himself is saying he was the toughest member of the family. But when you, when you do a search for that name, that's one of the first things that comes up, if not the very first thing, is, right, is, right. is that controversy. And that's just sad, but that happens with a lot of famous people. The mm-hmm. one infamous incident in their career, often which they had nothing to really control over, overshadows the, good, the greatness of all the rest of, of, of the body of their work. And sadly, Barry O is one of those, those, those individuals, I think. Well, another wrestler who thankfully had a very, I guess you could say he kind of had a controversy-free life, certainly nothing on that level, and literally one of the greatest tag team wrestlers of all time, if not just flat out one of the best in-ring talents, Bobby Eaton. And he was a guy who was only in his uh, mid to late 50s as well, so he, he went way too young. But he's a yes. guy that he's we easily guy. could fill an entire volume on over his career, oh, yeah. just, just of his exploits. But so I, I don't want to go too long, obviously, because we want to do an episode on Bobby yep. very soon, but how many tag team partners did he have that he got gold with? And just uh, the number of people that all he the was way, able to train going all the way back with? to being stuck with George Goulas, Nick Goulas as <laughs> <laughs> the jet set back in the old mid America, all the way through to his time, Midnight Express and Dangerous Alliance. And I can't say a good, enough good things about Bobby Eaton. I made a long post on my personal Facebook the the day of his passing. That one hit me hard. Uh, I was very blessed to share the ring with Bobby. It was very bl- a few times I was blessed to share locker rooms with him. So I, I anything that you've heard at listeners about Bobby being one of the nicest human beings to ever live in an hour out of the ring, I from my personal experience can verify that one hundred thousand percent. He's just one of the. It, I, I shed a tear when he when he passed because the world wrestling or otherwise needs more Bobby. He is, he's one of those guys where just about everybody has heat with somebody in the wrestling business. I'm not sure that's the case with, with Bobby Eaton. I, I, I certainly haven't heard of anybody that had heat with him. Have you ever heard in in this day and age of internet and shoot interviews, anybody, anybody say anything negative about Bobby? Right. If there was anything that could have been looked at as a negative, it was that he was too nice of a guy. I would be interested to see if somebody was stupid enough to say something bad about Bobby. <laughs> the repercussions of that from everybody in the wrestling business would be yeah. unmerciful. Because uh, I've heard the stories from like uh, Brian Alvarez and historians and such about how the, you'd have the uh, the really green wrestlers, the guys who don't know any better, and maybe even some that probably should know better, and they'd screw something up in the ring that's very, very basic. And it's like, okay, well, you're in the ring with Bobby Eaton, and uh, that the best thing that happens is nobody gets over. But don't make that same mistake if you're in there with Rick Rude because he'll kick the snot out of you <laughs> right then and there. Right. <laughs> so. My personal story of, of Bobby and his giving nature. Wrestled him in a tag match at a bar show in Columbia, South Carolina. Maybe 75, 100 people. We're no names. And he calls a spot in front of 100 people where I know he wasn't making that much money, where I hip-tossed him on the concrete when we were on the floor together. He called that spot. He called a spot to make me look good and sacrificed his body in his late 40s in front of 100 people to make me look good. That's who Bobby... I think he would definitely have fit that uh, criteria where, as I like to say, for guys who are just the best of the best, uh, I've never been a worker, never taken a bump in my life. I'm in my mid-40s, but six months of solid training, I probably could have had a decent match with Bobby Eaton because he'd be that good and idiot-proof the match (laughs) so well that... I think you know, Jim Cornette said many times when the comparisons between Bobby and Ric Flair came in their heyday in the 80s, who was better? And even mm-hmm. Cornette pointed out, 
Athletically, Bobby could do things that Ric Flair couldn't do on his best day, and Ric Flair would tell you that. Bobby just didn't have the size or the charisma. And I think we can all agree that that's probably the only reason Bobby won the world champion. There's reasons why you don't see Ric Flair do a dropkick. Yes, exactly. Buddy Colt, he was in his 80s, I believe, but he held a dozen titles, multiple NWA territories, and, and he was also, I think he was a bit of an international wrestler as well, right? Yeah, Buddy was one of the bigger stars of the 60s and 70s. I, I mostly know him from his run in Florida in the 70s. Probably most known of by from historians, the fact that he survived a plane, a, a plane crash. About a year after Ric Flair's infamous plane crash in early 1975, he was a pilot, and he was flying a private jet that had himself, Playboy Bobby Shane, who was also the booker at the time in Florida, which that should say how good a booker Bobby Shane was if, if Eddie Graham was letting him book his territory. Playboy Gary Hart and Austin Idol. And Buddy, Lo- I don't know how, why, how what happened. They ran out of fuel or if there was a storm, but Buddy had to put the plane into the, into, into, into the Tampa Bay. Unfortunately and sadly, it cost Bobby Shane his life, but Buddy, Gary, and Austin Idol all survived. So how many stories are there in wrestling of guys surviving plane crashes to just drive home the fact how tough wrestlers really are? <laughs> <You Yeah. know? laughs> but this is the same plane wreck. If you'll go back and watch any video on Peacock of Gary Hart from that, that late run managing Muda in the 80s, in WCW, you'll notice he has a scar across the bridge of his nose. That is from the plane wreck. Apparently, the angle that they went in, he, when he hit the water, it literally like ripped the nose, his nose off his face. He had to have several plastic surgeries to repair it. But he survived that, and I, I think it might have... I know it slowed down his bookings. It might have just essentially ended his career, much like Flair's plane wreck ended the career of Johnny Valentine. But he was a big star. And many wrestlers that helped me out from that era talk glowingly of buddy colt being just just a heat magnet a great heel knew how to get heat was one of those old school heels that didn't mind getting heat but i believe he was like 84 86 when he passed so at least he lived a long good full life you know indeed yeah one that i think a lot of listeners uh, will recognize the name had a lot of success in the 80s and early 90s butch reed i think people who might be a little younger than us maybe same age maybe a little younger might remember the run he had as the NWA tag champions with Ron Simmons as Doom. They, they didn't go into the names Butch Reed and Ron Simmons at first when they were masked, but they did win the NWA titles being managed by women, and they were actually one of the champions when they silently switched the titles from being the NWA World Tag Team titles to the WCW World Tag Team titles. Mm-hmm. So right. yeah, that was one of those subtle things. You almost kind of didn't notice it. But they basically what had happened was I think WCW split from the NWA, and so they just decided, well, we're just going to recognize all the people who have been NWA champions as uh, our, our our WCW champion, though. and then yeah. some of the belts were changed and all that, and then the NWA went on to crown their own champions later. But I just I figured that's just a nice piece of trivial Trivia? history, you might say, that they were the champions when that change was made. But he also had success earlier. He's actually part of the WrestleMania Four tournament. I think he mm-hmm. was he was one of the guys that I think Randy Savage beat in the WrestleMania Four turtle. Yeah, because yeah, I think it was a second round. Yeah, but but and that was that that was a big switch for him. That of course was when he was doing the it would never happen today the controversial character of the natural butchery where he dyed his afro blonde and they were basically making him look like an African American version of Hulk Hogan, a mm-hmm. heel version. But he had been a long time babyface in the Southern Territory. He's another one of these guys who had a, had a pro football career, played linebacker, had a great body and look for the business. Was probably one of the first guys to have that real chiseled look, wouldn't you say? Oh, he yeah, was, he, had, he had a great physique. Because he broke in around the same time. That, 
superstar Billy Graham was really establishing that that particular look in the business. So guys like him and Jesse the Body would come around just a few years after Superstar, and Butch was a wonderfully uh, gifted babyface because of that look and and his his amateur background in football. Little, another little bit of trivia: Dave Meltzer has talked about many times in interviews that as a college kid growing up in California, they would travel cross country to go on vacation. And mm-hmm. when he was in college, he actually went on spring break in Florida and they were in, I believe Daytona beach. I can't remember the story. It's been a while since I've heard him tell the story, but you, if you go back and listen to our episode about championship wrestling from Florida with classic Chris Nelson, we talk about the Hesterly armory there in Tampa was like the base for the Florida territory. And they had all their big matches. Well, they were going to have the matches there one night and Dave found out about it. This is when he's in college. So this is long before he started doing wrestling observer, but he was a lifelong wrestling fan. So he got some, some friends together and other college students that did not go to school with him. Just happened to be at the same hotel. They were at a lot of colleges were there. It's, it, Daytona beach has always been a college spring break destiny. And they, they carpooled over to Tampa and the main event was Ric Flair versus Butch Reed for the world title. This was like an 81. And he said, he said for years, up until like his second trip to Japan, that was the best match he'd ever seen live, ever. Think about that for a minute. Yeah, exactly. And he said to take nothing away from Butch Reed, now that he knows more about wrestling and everything, he realizes a lot of that was, was Flair doing the heavy lifting because Flair was the 10-year veteran at that point and, and Butch was, was a greenhorn, but Butch held his own. And when somebody who's seen as much wrestling as Dave Meltzer says that that was the best match he'd ever seen live for, you know, what, 10, 12 years, that's kind of impressive. And I still think he listed as one of the best matches he's ever seen ever live. So yeah, I think so. I don't think you can give a, a bigger tip of the cat to the, the modern day fan on Butch Reed, you know? Yeah, agreed. Chris Youngblood, who, of course, is the brother of Mark and Jay Youngblood. Now, he didn't have quite the success that uh, the Jay did, because I know Jay was probably best known for the Tag Team 3 Steamboat, right? Yes, yeah, Jay was. Of course, they had that. I still think it's one of the greatest tag team matches of all time at that same first Starcade for the mm-hmm. titles against the Briscoe brothers. But Mark, Jay, of course, tragically died young, had demons. But Mark went on to tag with, with Chris as the Renegade Warriors, which you might remember as, an, as a Native American tag team that were baby faces in WCW about the time you started watching, maybe a little okay. bit before. Late. Yeah, so right around 1990, 91. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Their father was Ricky Romero, who is uh, who's Latino and was a big was a big star in El Paso for the Guerreros and in Mexico. But yeah, Chris, I met Chris a few times. They are they lived in North Carolina. I worked some shows with Chris. Nice guy. It's the Youngbloods. It's it's one of those lesser known but still dynasty type families in wrestling. So I think Mark has now passed as well too. I think Mark died back in the nineties. So uh, sadly, right, all three yeah. of the brothers are gone. I believe. A name that people might not have heard uh, in a long time, and somehow I actually didn't know that there were actually two gimmicks, two personas, but Corporal Kirshner, probably best known for having that run in WWE in the mid-80s, they basically they tried to have him be uh, a replacement for Sergeant Slaughter, uh, is yes. what, they, what they tried to do. And he just, I don't think he had the charisma that, that Sarge did, so it just didn't work out as well. But what I didn't know, maybe I'm assuming you knew this, he actually... Mm-hmm 
changed his look, changed his gimmick and all that, and actually had a completely different style of matches in Japan for FMW under the name Leatherface, which I'm assuming is a playoff yes, yes. of Texas Chain- Chainsaw Massacre, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, it is. It was the same character. The garbage wrestling promotions in Japan loved doing that. They had a Fred, super Freddy Krueger and a super Michael Myers, and he was super Leatherface. And small promotions, copyright stuff being across the country, across the ocean, but... When I first heard that Corporal Kirster had died, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit I would thought it was a joke because in the early days of the internet, I remember uh, a guy who had the same real name as him passing away. And so there became this viral thing amongst the internet wrestling community that he had passed away and it wasn't him. It was just another right. guy with the same real name. This is before a lot of people were internet savvy. He had to figure out a way to get on the internet and say, I'm still alive. I'm still here, folks. That was like back back in like the late 90s early 2000s because i had heard dave Meltzer relay that that story that i think even dave Meltzer had assumed that it was the same guy just because he heard the last name kirchner was just like, oh okay so his last name was kirchner but, right but yeah he was a completely different guy so when when that news hit I, i'm like i said i'm embarrassed to admit i thought is this another joke i i thought when i read it i was like oh this is somebody just playing off of that 20 years ago but sadly it was not he really had did pass away this time was mm-hmm. the guy so daphne unger I know she didn't really use the Unger name very much, but she came to prominence in WCW in the late 90s. So she was wrestling at that time where we kind of put at or before the cutoff period that we kind of look at for classic wrestling memories, meaning before WCW was bought out. She also had she also uh, regular had. runs in TNA and, and independence. Unfortunately, with her, by her own admission, she, I think, had a lot of concussions and those add up and just had a lot of depression i couldn't bring myself to look at or read into what she did in her final days because i guess she actually laid out everything as to why she was killing herself and she wished her brain to be donated to uh, be be looked at and worked on because when she killed herself she actually shot herself in the heart she didn't she shoot herself in the head right i'd always heard that besides the concussion issue she had other mental health issues i know that our listeners regular listeners know i'm i, I worked some with david flair at dinah Wildside, and, and david of course worked with her some in wcw david said she was a sweetheart david thought the world of her and with her ties to tna and a lot of these southern independent promotions i i, I never got to share a locker room with daphne but i know a lot of guys who, you know mm-hmm. a lot of my friends and and peers and she's one of those people lot like Bobby Eaton. I don't think I've ever heard anybody have anything bad to say about her. She seems to be one of those that earn the stripes enough to be thought of as as a worker, as as one of the boys, you might say. Mm-hmm. And just what, what most of them would talk about is just, just a good person, like just mm-hmm. much in the same vein as Bobby Eaton. Just, just a nice person would go out of her way. I think with her character being kind of this gothic weirdo oddball i'm very familiar with that with my gimmick mm-hmm. as well there's always going to be a certain segment of the younger audience that's going to be drawn to you because they relate to you they live vicarious yeah. through you through you it'd been said to me by several of my peers that daphne realized that and would always make time for those young fans who reached out to her because she got it she mm-hmm. got that she gave them hope and, and that's that that's a special thing I believe it actually is a shoot. She got hired just because she took a video camera and cut a promo into a video camera, sent it into WCW, and they called her back. And that's how she got in. Isn't that kind of almost so, like an American dream type thing? <laughs> oh, not yeah, that American. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's 
Yeah, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> no, no, no. Who knows? Dusty, Dusty liked those kind of people. So Dusty might have had. Maybe he did have a say in it. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 can't, I think Dusty was with the company at the time. Yeah, and probably I, in a creative I, past, yeah, capacity too. I, I like, I like, I like that little dark headed girl, man. I, I believe she can. See, 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 that's not the charisma. We could do something with that. <laughs> I, I, can, I can hear Dusty saying that right now. Can you? Yeah. <laughs> but, but like you said, I think of all the deaths we had last year, hers is definitely one of the most tragic because of the circumstances surrounding it. Mm-hmm. It was very public because she went to Twitter and, and, and social media the days leading to her demise. Even had guys like Mick Foley, who I think another one of the nicest guys in the history of the wrestling business, reaching out on the internet saying, does somebody know how to get a hold of Daphne? I, I saw wanting, those tweets, yeah. Yeah, Dan Wilson, who, of course, is a friend of the show, has been on several times, was friends with Daphne. He was, same thing. There were a lot of people in the wrestling business concerned. And unfortunately, uh, none of us were able to get to her in time. Yeah. But uh, don't ever judge people. Suicide has unfortunately affected me very personally in my mm-hmm. life. It's why we take those threats very seriously in the line of work I do. I choose to remember the good times. And fortunately for us, a lot of Daphne's career is is easily accessible through the internet because of the... So go back and watch those and remember the good stuff. The only thing I'll add, and obviously I'm not going to provide details here, but having been around people who are that bad I, I mean, are, are that low where they they feel that it, it's it's just time to end everything. Those people in vast majority of the time, they are putting others before themselves. They're they're so yeah. down that they think they're the weight to everybody, to other people's problems. And in the vast majority of cases, that's actually not the case. It, we do care about these people. But so they understand I, that. Right, right. So that's the thing that ringed in uh, my heart and my mind when I was uh, hearing about that she was going to these great lengths to put her last views down. And that does match up with people who have been suicidal that, that I've known. It's like the last thing they want to do is bother somebody else. And they, 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 that's why they're making their exit. Okay, now that like, we've got to climb out of this depressing pit I just threw us in. <laughs> one that we, we're not going to talk about him too much here because we dedicated part of an, uh, an episode to him, Del Wilkes, the Patriot, the Trooper. If you want to hear more about Del's life, Look up our volume 39, because we did part of that show dedicated to him. But to summarize with him, he was one of the few guys that I recall who was the Patriot in WWE. And, of course, a lot of people know that he was actually using the music that became Kurt Angle's music when Angle joined WWE. Mm. You know, the dun-dun, right. you know, dun-dun. Yeah. They used to talk me. Yeah, exactly. But what was unique about him is WWE made it no secret and he made it no secret who he was that he puts mm-hmm. on the mask as the patriot kind of an alter ego but you will find wwe programming with him being interviewed without the mask describing why he puts on the mask because he loves his country and all that so i know the history and even the modern times when they have a masked wrestler they just go by a name and they just go by that name and that persona without any other name attached to it. And that wasn't the case with Dell, at least with WWE. They, they made it right. clear that this is a guy, he just likes to put on the mask and be called the Patriot because that's a superhero alter ego, you might say. Yep. I, if you go back to that, that that episode that Seth referred to, I'll go into, I'll go into great detail. Dell was a friend of mine. We were trained by the same guy. Well, immense amount of respect for Dell Will. Just a super, another super good guy. I, I know he kind of rubbed some people the wrong way because he was very outspoken about his political beliefs, about his religious beliefs. And those are topics that can usually upset some people. But I respect for not backing down. 
He had his own demons. We talk about those in episode as well, but he was also very forthright about those. But I, Dell's one of those guys. You've heard me say it before with like about Wahoo and stuff. It hit me pretty hard and mm-hmm. uh, I miss him every day because Dell was, yeah. Dell was, he was good to me and he was a good friend. Dominic DiNucci, an Italian wrestler, held over a dozen titles worldwide. I'm going to be a little self-deprecating here. I don't mind people knowing this because it was just one of the things when I was first getting into wrestling in the early 90s and reading the after mags and stuff like that. And if Chris Nelson is uh, hears this episode, I hope he laughs with it or at it rather than rolls his eyes. But I heard the name Dominic DiNucci, and I actually thought of... Chris Nelson's tag partner, Vito DiNucci. I was like, okay, is there a connection here? You know, I, I've never, I've never asked Vito that. I, I will ask him that, and and there will be an answer to that to that very question come uh, next episode. I'll, I'll find <laughs> out from Vito if the, what was the inspiration on him choosing the DiNucci? Because yeah. trust me, that is not Vito's real name. <laughs> right. I can only imagine there's. Uh, some Italian fans listening to this going, do you realize how many Danucci's there are in the world? <laughs> That's like Smith to English people. <laughs> right. Yeah. Of but course, was... I think Dominic is probably most well-known to modern fans as the trainer of Mick Foley, Shane Douglas, and the late, great Brian Hildebrand slash Mark Curtis, the referee. But I think, I think, I'm, I think all three of them actually might even be in the same training class. That's a heck of a training class, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But are all around the same time, if not the same training class. And Mick has talked about it. Shane has too in interviews that Dominic was what, like a multi-time WWF or WWF tag team champion? I believe uh, so. In I'm, the 70s? I, I'm going through his title list here. He was a two-time tag champion with... With two different partners, right? Yeah, yeah. Pat Barrett and Dino Bravo. Obviously very young in, in Bravo's career. But, yeah, young baby-faced Dino Bravo, not... Blonde-headed, heel Dino Bravo that we know in the 80s, yeah. Right. But one other title. This is the most interesting one to me, for obvious reasons when you hear it. There was a WWWF, Worldwide Federation, the company that would eventually become WWE. They had the International Tag Team Championship that he held with Bruno Sammartino. Yes. Bruno Sammartino was a tag champion. <laughs> that was what I was going to bring up. is If you go back and look at Bruno's two runs as the world champion, mm-hmm. we've talked about it. If you go back to our Bruno episode, we talk about Dominic in that episode. At least I remember I do. I can't remember if you did. The 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 formula that Vince's father used was the the monster of the month, as I like to call it, where they would bring mm-hmm. in a big jacked up heel that was a threat to Bruno's title. Right. That was like Bill Watts was one of those guys. Ernie Lab was one of those. And, Ivan in Memphis, and, and in Memphis, they did that with Jerry Lawler. I think the more modern term to dub it would be it's the boss fight. It's the monthly boss fight. But the formula that that Vince's father always used was he would set up Bruno to step up and take on said monster of the month by often injuring Dominic DiNucci. And he would come to the aid of his Italian brother. That was the formula. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Totally. So it was established on camera. And like you said, through this title reign that Bruno and Dominic, I cannot remember if they said they were cousins on air, much like they would say about Flair and the Andersons. But I think they might have. But if nothing else, there was this bond because they were both Italian-American. And, and, and the monster of the month would injure or screw Dominic out of a shot, and Bruno would have to come down and make the save and thus set up the big run in all the big buildings. It was a formula, and it worked for years. How long were those runs that, that Bruno had as a champion? And Dominic Absolutely, was very yeah. important to that. Mick Foley tells a great story about how tough Dominic DiNucci was when he first— and Dominic did speak with a very heavy Italian accent. 
That was just his natural voice. Yeah, if you think Bruno had an accent, <laughs> you haven't heard dominant. nothing to her dominant cut promo. Yeah, <laughs> and so here's Mick Foley doing his Italian American accent. He goes, "Bruno," he said. Dominic was like, "Oh, you think wrestling, huh? Uh, show me how to throw a forearm." And, and he said, "You know, he was green, so he threw these like terrible forearms, doing the stomp to get the sound." And Dominic backed him in the corner and just knocked the breath out of one forearm to the chest. And then, then another one. He goes, "You had enough? That's how you throw a forearm. Now go away." Come back, maybe you say to me more. <laughs> that's a forearm. <laughs> it says, you're like, that's a spicy meatball. That's a forearm. <laughs> yeah. See, we don't have old time trainers like that anymore. I miss guys like yeah. that. That's how yeah. I was trained. <laughs> Absolutely. The next up would be Don Kernodal. And again, in volume 39, we discuss his career as well. He really only had a true in ring career for a couple of years in the early to mid 80s, probably best remembered for being part of Sergeant Slaughter's Cobra Corps. And that that was also with a the man who would become Boris Zukov in WWE. But that I think he actually retired pretty pretty young, if I recall correctly. He went into semi retirement uh, pretty early. He did. He did. I bring up on that episode, and of course, he's Don's a huge hero in this area because he is a North Carolina boy. Bulk of his uh, his career, especially success wise, top of the card was here in the Carolinas. I, I I would really encourage our listeners to go back and listen to that episode if you haven't, because Don is the epitome of the fan who really wanted to become a wrestler and wouldn't take no for an answer. And I think Don had a lot better genetics than he gave himself credit for because you don't get as far as he did if you didn't. Right. So I'm not telling every every 105 pound five foot five listener we got, hey, go out, work hard, and you become the next whole coach. You can't, okay? <laughs> Don right. had a little bit more to play with than y'all did. But what I'm saying is it's still, I think, a heartwarming and encouraging story. Don't you? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think I made the same joke in volume 39, but Sergeant Slaughter's Cobra Corps was, of course, Sarge, Don Kernodal, and Jim Nelson, who is, like I said, would become Boris Zukov because private, like, private Jim Nelson. Yes. Yeah. Because, I mean, obviously, Sergeant Slaughter has a ring to it. Jim Nelson doesn't exactly strike fear into the hearts of enemies. So I think that's probably why he went by Boris Zukov to, to be the, the Russian guy <laughs> in, in his later <laughs> WWE run. Oh, it's yeah. another guy. That, uh, actually, we could do an entire episode on the sing- just one of the tag teams formed here, Jack, Lan- mm-hmm. also known as Blackjack Lanza. He was part of the Blackjacks with Robert Wy- Wyndham, the, the father of Barry Wyndham, and they got inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame, I believe, a- as a tag team. And they did, they did, and probably with the Blackjacks, they they had runs all over the place. But I think that was one of the early, if not the first, real gigs that Bobby Heenan got as a manager. Was he was the manager of the yeah. Blackjacks? Oh, there's this legendary when they were at their run as a top heel team in the AWA. That Bobby Heenan, he was real, real gutsy, running his mouth to these fans he got the heat with when he had Jack and Bob standing behind him. <laughs> Right, I mean, and when you got those two mountain of men standing behind you, yeah, it's really easy to be tough guy. You know? Right, Jack Lanza is absolute legend in the wrestling business. Bob spoke too. Oh, great mustache! But Bob, sorry, Blackjack Mulligan. Bob Wyndham spoke glowingly of him. And for our listeners that don't know, I think most of them do. I was friends with Bob at the end of his life because he trained with Joe Blanchard, Tully's father in the same training class that my mentor Susan Green trained in back in the 60s. But he spoke glowingly of Jack. Jack, a honky-tonk man, jokes and calls him one-eyed Jack because he, he, had, he had an eye injury earlier in his career, and so one of his eyes was kind of squinted shut. <laughs> so honky-tonk with Joe call him one-eyed Jack. <laughs> but uh, Jack, I think, probably is just as important as entering career 
he was one of the top dogs behind the scenes for years in the WWE slash producer for a very mm-hmm. long time. He was the he was the money guy. He was the money guy. All the guys I know that did did television for for events in the eighties and nineties. If you wanted to get what, what we call in the business a draw, meaning an advance on your pay, so you had some walking around cash for that night on the town. Jack's mm-hmm. you went and saw. Jack was. Yeah, I've talked about before the the term we use in the business. The old tool term was the bag man. The bag man was the got was the old grizzled veteran who was tougher than a two dollar steak to steal Jr.'s quote. Whose job it was was to get the receipt, the gate receipts from the box office at the building that night, and then get them back to the wherever the wherever the office. Is. And they were always these old curmudgeonly veterans. You probably wouldn't want to mess with anyways. And most of them were, most of them were packing. Mm-hmm. Jack Lanza and Gorilla Monsoon were those guys for the WWF. So that, that should give you an I mean, the idea of how trusted he was that Vince McMahon Jr., Vincent Kennedy McMahon trusted him to carry that amount of cash over state lines and make sure it got back to him. The, the, I, though I think I need to speak any higher yeah. how much he was trusted. Yeah, a whole lot of trust there. <laughs> yeah. And it's literally when you go back to the territorial days, especially, I don't think people understand because it was a cash only box office driven revenue driven business there were literally hundreds of thousands of dollars going being carried in small briefcases by these guys across the country <laughs> if you look at like annual receipts and they did it nowadays they get found out and they get robbed or at least somebody would try but jack was the guy everybody taught you went to jack lanza for your draw but that not only do you have to trust him to carry the money and not get robbed but you also have enough have to have enough trust in him that he keeps detailed records of how much he gave this talent, so that's deducted from the weekly paycheck too. That's what advances are all about. Yeah, that's what that's what draw is is an advance. When I had my a tryout for the WWE, Jack's who I got my paycheck from. That's who all the the local talent that was brought in on all performance, the tryout guys, the local guys, the the guys that are brought in just for TV. Jack's who we went to to get our paycheck. He was also in charge of paying the guys that were on a, on a night basis. So. I was handed my paycheck. It wasn't signed by him. It was rubber stamp Vince McMahon. But my check was handed to me by Jack Lanza. It was his responsibility. So it was his responsibility. After I was done, we were told by JR and uh, Kevin Kelly and Michael Hayes, who were all working with the young talent, the new talent at the time. They said, make sure you see Jack. Get your pay on the way out. So we did. One who was not a wrestler, but arguably the number two promoter of all time, and certainly the main force behind the popularity of Jim Crockett promoting Jim Crockett Jr., we detailed his career in volume 37, so I think we'll summarize here that I think it's fair to say that arguably the number two promo- uh, promoter, Vince is obviously the num- number one by far because mm-hmm. he's, he's still around. But I think the case can be made that Jim Crockett promotions in the 80s, that was a, seen as the num- number two promotion at the time. And still, mm-hmm. to this day, people that get into wrestling, they look at those shows that Jim Crockett Promotions did in the 80s you know, for, for study purposes, for inspiration or whatever, whether it's for a wrestler or for creator or things like, like mm-hmm. that. So the fact that people still go back to that time for inspiration, I think, is a testament to how good a lot of his kind of booking and promoting was. Yeah, I think usually in any particular sport or endeavor, the farther you removed you get from a particular time era, the less respected it becomes because technological breakthroughs and evolution. That's not necessarily true. We're talking 40 years later, and that run that they had in the mid-80s is still considered one of the gold standards of what a wrestling promotion could be. I don't think I need to speak any more about Jim Crockett Jr. as an individual and then his brothers and sisters 
who, who or her sister who ran that promotion are definitely one of the absolute most important individuals in my being on this show right now. They are the foundation to which I became a wrestling fan and inspired me to want to do what I did for a living years. So I, I can't I can't give him any other higher praise than that. And I can never repay him or thank him enough for all the hours of entertainment and enjoyment he gave me as a child. Never will be able to repay that. Never be able to say thank you enough. The next one here does kind of break our own rule because we were talking about before WCW folded. But you knew him. I interviewed him. We're talking about Jimmy Rave. And I'm not lying when I say this. I'm not just uh, blowing smoke or anything like that. He was one of the most interesting interviews I ever did because even then, it's almost 10 years ago now, I think, he was one of those guys that didn't seem to deny his demons. You know, because I, no. I, 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 before we went on the air with that interview, and sadly, I think the interview that that episode may be lost in the ether now in the, in the internet uh, garbage can, you might say. It's in the cloud somewhere. It's just it's a true. matter of finding it. <laughs> yeah. Or, or maybe, who knows, maybe it's in one of the, dozen hard drives I'm keeping in my closet. That's beside the point. But I remember before we went on the air, I had asked him, is is it okay if we, something to the effect, I'm I'm paraphrasing myself here, but something to the effect of, is it okay if we ask you these, these questions, you know, essentially about substance abuse and, and all that stuff. And his response was, I'm an open book, you know, ask me anything you want. And I think that that is always a sign of somebody who I don't know, courteous is the word, but somebody that is willing to talk about their demons openly like that, that's definitely worthy of admiration is probably the best way. Of all the deaths we've gone over, obviously Jimmy's was the one that probably hit me the hardest last year because I was probably closer to him than anybody else. I mean, I was friends with with, with Del Wilkes, but not the same as Jimmy. Jimmy's a guy I'd shared a locker room with, shared the ring with. Jimmy was just starting out his career. God, he was young, maybe 18, 19, 20 years old. When I first met Jimmy and he'd come up from Atlanta and we were working at Wildside together and he was this just white meat baby face that was cute and the girls loved him and he could sell his ass off and make the fans feel sorry for him. And he didn't do a whole lot of high flying, which was unusual for a junior heavyweight at that time, but boy, he could get sympathy and man, he respected the old school and he started in the business when he was 17 and he was one of those guys, much like Don Carnoodle, who just was a lifelong fan who believed he could do it. And he did. And it's all he knew. And Jimmy quickly, quickly got way better than I ever was and quickly moved up the card in Wildside to like a semi-main event level as a top cruiserweight. And even with all that being said, and me being the opening match guy, he always came to me in a respectful manner, would ask my opinion on a spot or a finish or my advice on maybe what should I do in this match? And that never changed. Even after he had had done more in the business than I had done and gotten signed to a contract, when I would run into Jimmy, he'd always give me a hug and say, it was so good to see you, brother. And did you see my match? What did you think? What could I do better? That that kind of respect, I don't know. It's very sad. I have, I have a lot of good stories about Jimmy. Both his first trip to to the Orient or to Japan and mine were together. We flew we flew out of Atlanta together, so that was a fun flight. Fortunately, he had not really got into his demons yet at that point. As I retired and I focused on my family and his career still went, is when his demons and I, I had lost touch. I was still friends with Jimmy. If I saw him at shows, 
if 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 he reached out to me through a text or through a DM, we would talk, but we weren't nearly as close. And now that he's gone, I regret that. But life's life's full of 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 missed opportunities. It was just sad the last few years of Jimmy's life, losing his arm, then losing both his legs, and the staph infection, and he just. I, I I don't want to speculate, but here's a guy I know loved the wrestling business, and it's all he knew how to do. It's all he ever did as an adult. Like I said he started when he was 17, and to have that taken away, I can't even imagine. I had my wrestling career taken away because of the concussion issues and other injuries, but I had, I had a 15-year a career. I had a college degree, and I had something else I could go into. So I, I can't even begin to imagine, but I can't say enough good things about Jimmy, what you said about his honesty. One of the things that gets me about Jimmy, one of my personal stories, one of his first big profile matches in Wildside was for the junior heavyweight title, the cruiserweight title. And it was with Caprice Coleman, another guy who's just a great guy and, and going on to much bigger and greater things than I ever did in my business. If you, if you haven't heard him as an announcer on Ring of Honor, you're, you're doing yourself a disservice. Caprice <laughs> Coleman is great on the microphone and, and a top flight in-ring competitor and just a good person. But the two of them had a match and... Both of them came to me before, hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about it? And, and I, I even came up with a finish to that match, a simple rolling three-quarter Nelson pin for Jimmy. And both of them, years later, after I retired, and I was a nobody comedy guy who wrestled in the opening match, and both these guys, one's working for TNA and one's working for Ring of Honor. They both signed contracts. And I heard both of them say publicly that you all had this great match early in your careers, and, and both of them have said, well, you need to lie that to a lot of people. One of them's got in crazy train because he, he helped us call that match before we went out there. That, I, I'm speaking, I don't know what else to say. The only thing I could add is I think if he had been born 20 years earlier and would have had the prime of his career in the 80s when, when the territories were still around, his phone would be ringing off the hook because all the territories had wanted to want to hire him. He was the epitome of a white beat baby face. And which was crazy because... At the end of his career, that run he had in Ring of Honor as part of the of, of the embassy was as a heel, and he was just as effective as a heel. That's true talent when you can do both both as effectively as Jimmy did. Yep, agreed. One who I don't recall too often playing a babyface, but we also lost uh, last year Jody Hamilton, who will always probably be best known to fans as being one of the assassins. Mm -hmm. But he also had a heck of a career behind the curtain, you might say. He was a, an accomplished trainer. He it ran a power plant for WCW. Yeah, yeah. So he, he was involved in training people and working with talent to make them more comfortable and such. And to back that up, if you go and watch all the WWE Hall of Fame ceremonies when guys and gals are up there doing their acceptance speech, you'll hear Jody Hamilton's name a lot in those yeah. acceptance. Another unique guy, much like Land, uh, Jack Lanza, a big guy, but a big guy who wore a mask who could cut a promo. Jody Hamilton's promos are heel promo 101. He, he had evil, bad, nasty intentions, and he let you know it. And he did it in a way that made you feel like he felt he was better than you, which made you even more mad, which is exactly <laughs> what, a, what a heel's job was supposed to do. We have profiled a lot of great masked wrestlers throughout all our episodes i i think are a lot of people that know a lot more about the wrestling business than me would agree jody hamilton might be the greatest masked tag team wrestler of all time he and tom ernesto is the original mass assassins one and two were just legendary they were top drawing heel tag team in every territory that mattered jim ross 
who's everybody knows besides being the great one of the greatest announcers of all time is just a huge wrestling fan has openly said many many times he is a wrestling fan for one reason one reason only because he saw the kentuckians grizzly smith and i cannot remember the other guy's name in a feud with the mass assassins when he was a kid that hooked him into wrestling so i don't think he'd say much more than that can you right Uh, coming to the end the list here we got two more to talk about new jack who probably best known for his runs in ecw he did have a tna run and such but it was definitely the the runs he had in smoky mountain and ecw that i think was what fans will remember him most and you actually knew new jack a little bit right of course yeah i worked with new jack i think jack's probably one of the most controversial characters that's ever existed in this business i i, I think jack <laughs> embraced it he 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 relished in it a little bit i get that why a lot of people have the feelings they have about i always got long file he was a little bit of a wild card he was a little bit off 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 a center most of the time but i think my take on jack was always been this that once you got to know jack and you you, you kind of cut through all the bs Jack was a guy who had come up the old school way. He, he wrestled small independent promotions. He learned the basic craft. He had a natural gift for Gab and had a natural charisma about him and took the skill set that he had to make money in this business. And at the same time, kind of painted himself into a corner with some of the spots he would do that really cost him physically in his life. And... I don't think he had any regrets, but I think he felt, and I agree with him, by the way, he deserves some respect for that. And sometimes because he was so controversial, he didn't get the respect that he should from some people. And he was the kind of guy, throwback to the old school, that if you didn't give him that respect, he was going to get it. He'll beat it out of you. Yep. And that's the thing I think that's really missing that people don't see with New Jack. New Jack is no different than Harley Race. You disrespected pro wrestling, you disrespected Harley Race, he was going to hit you in the mouth and let you, and going to earn your respect. New Jack wasn't any different. Now, he might pull some Wolverine claw-looking thing and stab you in the back like he did that one kid down in Florida, which, you know, that's questionable. But at the same time, Jack was a throwback in many ways to the old school. This is not a work. This is a shoot. And if you don't believe me, I'll show you better than I can tell you. And that's who Jack was. And I think if you, if you if you treated Jack with respect, if you treated Jack with, I appreciate what you've done for this business, he'd have no problems with you. But if you didn't and you had a big head, he was going to let you know. Give you an idea of how Jack was about that. You heard of me often talk about Bubba Kirk, my trainer, the same guy who trained Del Wilkes. One of, the first, one of the shows I worked with Jack, he was supposed to work Tommy Rich in Atlanta. Tommy no-showed. Eh, Tommy is known for that. Love, I love Tommy, though, so I'm not shooting on Tommy. Tommy's not important to this story. But Tommy no-showed. Before we know he was going to no-show, he just wasn't there. Jack was getting a little antsy. And he told the promoter, hey, I'm going to get me something to drink. (laughs) (laughs) So he had a a Mercedes Benz and he always had a little entourage. That's how Jack was. And he had his guy that was driving for him. And and it was nice Mercedes. And we were in the the bad part of Atlanta, okay? So Jack was going to fit in just fine. Because Jack's from that part of Atlanta, right? They know Jack. He's a local celebrity there. And he tells her, I'm going to get something to drink. They want to go with me? And Bubba says, yeah, me. Now, remember, Jack, who has this notorious persona of this militant black guy, right? Bubba is six foot five, 275 pound, white dude with a lemmy mustache, misses two front teeth, who goes by the gimmick redneck Bubba Kirk. 
He's wearing a T-shirt that has a Confederate flag on it. This is in the two, early 2000s, okay? And, and Bubba said, I'll go. I'll ride with you, Jason. Come on, big man. The one guy you think just based on appearances alone, Jack will have nothing to do with, and he wouldn't want anything to do with Jack. When they get back 20 minutes later, they're sitting there drinking out of the same bottle, laughing and guffawing. <laughs> and on the ride back home, I asked Bubba, I said, how'd that go with New Jack? He goes, oh, he's cool as a fan, man. I said, well, how'd it go down? He goes, as soon as I got in the car, he looked at me and said, how long you been working, big man? <laughs> and he told him, and he said, who trained you? And he told him, he said, he goes, I want to wrestle you, man. You know what you're doing. We'll take care of each other. <laughs> That's the real new Jack. Jack was an old school guy who could look at another guy and say, this guy's old school. This guy respects the business. He lives his gimmick. He, he's not going to make me look bad. He's going to take care of me. That's, the, that's who New Jack was. Not this crap that you see on Vice's dark side of the ring. That was a part of Jack. And a lot of that was, was chemical enhancement. But at his core, my opinion of New Jack, he was a guy who was old school. And if you didn't like it, oh, well, he was going to show you. We'll wind this up with who is arguably the, the biggest star on the list and certainly one that was on my list to do an episode on just dedicated to his career. Mr. Wonderful Paul Orndorff, WWE Hall of Famer, main eventer, was inducted into the Hall of Fame, I think the same year Hogan was, but one of those guys that was legitimately one of the top guys during the national expansion, Hulkamania era, what, whatever you want to call it. I mean, Rock and wrestling. <laughs> yeah. But, and he worked effectively both as heel and babyface because, of course, he feuded and tagged with Hogan over the years. Also, one of the best physiques I seem to recall from back in those days, yeah. back in the without 80s a and doubt. such. Yeah. Without a doubt. God, he was chiseled out of stone like a Greek god. Mm -hmm. And I think he also helped train WCW wrestlers at that power plant, I think, after he... He was one of the guys that would go down there and work out with him. Yes, he was. I don't think I can really say anything about him that... People don't already know about, like I said, Hall of Famer, part of uh, the, the original WrestleMania in the main event. So the, uh, I don't know if you had anything that, that could be added that, that I didn't see. No, no, I just, I think that we did that episode early on, Booking 101. Go back and watch the three or four month build up to his turn on Hulk Hogan and turning heel. That's how you book a heel turn. That's how you do a heel turn. It's one of the best heel turns I've ever seen. I, 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 I very well documented, well known the toughness Paul Orndorff had. Besides, the, he was as tough as he looked. And Big Van Vader uh, learned that firsthand. Learned that the hard way. Exactly. Yeah. I think the fact that he had had cancer for what? The last six or seven years before it took his life? That in and of itself just speaks to how tough he was. That it took cancer that long to take him. And I, I, it's interesting we're wrapping up with Paul because that makes what? The sixth or seventh guy we've listed was legitimately a tough guy. That's so much different than what the business has become now. These. Yeah. All these guys, a lot of these guys we named were were notorious for being legitimate tough guys outside of the wrestling ring. You guys, you didn't want to get in a fight with Angelo Mosca. You didn't want to get in a fight with Butch Reed. You didn't want to get in a fight with with Dominic DiNucci or Jack Lanza because you were going to lose or New Jack. Well, Paul Orndorff's right in there with them, and that's that's why I love doing classic wrestling memories. It's it's definitely one of the things that drew me to wrestling was that. These guys, yeah, they were braggadocious and they talked a lot on television, but a lot of them backed it up. Mm -hmm. And it's, I don't think they were bullies. I don't think these guys went out looking for fights, but if you want to start one, they were going to finish it. And I think that's kind of what happened with Paul and, 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 and Vader. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's all, all the, all the talent we listed. It's sad they're gone, but father time, the Grim Reaper, they got that. They don't job for anybody. Eventually you will do the honors for them. Each one of these, these, these brothers and a sister that we mentioned to, today, they, 
they each brought something unique and special to the wrestling business. If you're a fan, you owe a debt to them. If you're a, you owe a debt to a lot of them too, because they definitely paved the way for this crazy business that we call professional wrestling. And, and the diversity that we covered today, I think is one of the other reasons I was drawn to wrestling is that you can have guys that are that diverse. You can have a guy like New Jack talked about the same episode with a guy like Don Kernodal, who was an amateur wrestler at a small college or a, somebody like, like you said, Daft, you just videotaped yourself, cut a promo and send it in to a former pro football player like Angelo Mosca. Each one of them brought something unique and different to the business. And that's why we're honoring them today. And that's going to wrap up our list of In Memoriam 2021. If you think we left somebody out, we're certainly open to discussion on that. If you're listening to us for the first time, Classic Wrestling Memories, we're at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. If you look at the podcatcher you're choosing, do a search. You should be able to find us, Classic Wrestling Memories. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, all, all those names you can think of, we're, we're on there. And if you want to give us some feedback, you can find us on social media, Facebook, Classic Wrestling Memories, or you can go to the show notes, the pages for episodes, and you can actually reply on that as well similar like what you could do on Facebook. And another way you can get a hold of us, if you want to give us feedback or suggestions, because I say I always, I always uh, appreciate feedback, even when it's negative, as long as it's genuine, you can actually email us. The email address for the show is show at com. You can drop an email there. I can't guarantee we get to all of them every day, but but I certainly want to go through the list and read as many as I can. So once again, show at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. That's our email address. And Train, if anybody wants to talk to you about wrestling or uh, music or anything like that, where can they find you? I'm always available on Twitter at, at CrazyTrain underscore JB. That is also my handle across pretty much every social media platform that I'm membership to. Or, or I, I check Twitter more than I do anything else. But do a search. If you see uh, uh, CrazyTrain underscore JB and you see a picture of me in my wrestling gear, you got the right one and just send me a message and I'll, I, I will get back to you as soon as possible. That's going to wrap it up here for volume 41 in memoriam 2021. I didn't, I just realized that kind of rhymes, but we'll be back uh, soon. We got a lot of stuff planned for 2022. We're going to try to put episodes out more often and 2022 just in general looks like it's going to be an exciting year for us. Cause like we said at the top of the show, we're actually getting an increased number of, fans on facebook the, the download numbers are going up so i'm definitely humbled every time i see that the numbers have risen or that there's been uh, any sort of change so definitely let us know what we're doing well let us know if there's something we can do better when we'll be back next time with another edition of classic wrestling memories Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners, all rights reserved.
The only other thing I ever had. Aside from that really loud truck? Yeah. <laughs>